Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, it's good to be with you. Um, before I get going, though, before I get going, I need to, to shout out to somebody. I don't know, um, I wouldn't expect anyone to realize, but to try to get everybody in here in seats that are socially distanced apart is a Herculean task, to say the least. It is a puzzle piece. Those who like puzzles, you would like putting this together, but most of us would not. And we have a group of people in the back. I think some of, you, some of their, their, them are back there right now who seat people every single week. And they know they're sitting you in probably not your favorite seat. But they are trying to carry out this whole puzzle piece at the same time so we can meet safely and not get shut down. So can we please, all those ushers, all those people who put this together, can we give them a big round of thank you? Man, I, and I, I want to thank you guys as well for being patient with that process, even if it's not your favorite seat, uh, that we get to come in here and worship together. That's what this is about. And these ushers, these volunteers help make that possible. So a big, big thank you to them. So today we are getting right back in the book of Acts. If you're new, then this book is written by a doctor named Luke. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, telling the story or giving an account of the beginning of this movement that we are a part of called the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's a remarkable account. And we, we started going through this back in April, if you guys remember who have been here over the summer. This is when we were meeting just online. We could not gather in person yet. And as we did that, we were looking back at the beginning of this movement of the church. Realizing that all the forms and all the ways of being the church were looking very different. But we were asking, what does it mean to be the church? And one thing that this book makes clear over and over again is that though the forms may change, though the seasons of life may change, that the Spirit of God keeps moving. And I, just, I think that's a reminder that we all need this morning, or at least I do, that in different seasons, in different forms, in different cultures, under different government leaders, the mission moves forward. Amen, somebody. So all that to say, that's a reminder that I just needed um, why we started this book in the first place. But, believe it or not, we're getting toward the end of the book of Acts. We only have a few chapters left. And this week, uh, we are going to dive into uh, Acts 24. But before you turn there, or as you're turning there, just a reminder that we're looking at a guy named Paul. And to catch us up from last week, Paul came into Jerusalem to give a financial gift from all the Gentile churches to the poor in Jerusalem. But in doing so, he was in the temple and a, a mob of Jews from Asia tried to lynch him on the spot, causing a riot, which caused the Romans to arrest him. So now, from Acts 23 to 26... This covers about a two or three year period where Paul, an innocent man in chains, is now appearing before four different rulers. And I hope some of you hopefully read it, read through it this week in preparation for today. Um, but as we do that, we're going to dive into, like I said, Acts 24. And as you're turning there, I've been reflecting a lot this week on 
the effect that so much of what we're going through has had on us. I don't know, at least certainly not in my lifetime, but maybe many of you would say the same. I don't know that I've lived in a season where we've had so many laws and regulations added to our lives in such a short period of time. Would you guys agree with that? I mean, this is my first ever pandemic, so <laughs> it's certainly the first time that I've seen so many things placed on, added to our lives in such a short period of time, which can be incredibly disconcerting. But that causes me to ask the question, as those who follow Jesus, whose first allegiance is to Jesus, what is our responsibility toward earthly law? To ask another way, as the church of Jesus, what is our relationship to our government leaders? We are not just, as Paul says, citizens of heaven, but we're citizens of earth. So, but our first allegiance is to Jesus. So what is our relationship, our responsibility to the law and to those tasked to uphold it? So with that question in mind, um, back at the end of July, my family and I went down uh, south to visit family. And after we arrived down south, we heard that Massachusetts passed this travel restriction law. That it, as we returned, because we were coming from one of those states, uh, that when we returned, we would be required to quarantine for 14 days or uh, get a negative COVID test result. And when I initially heard the law, I thought, okay, I understand the reason behind it, and we'll make plans as soon after we get back uh, to be tested so that we're not in quarantine very long. But then a day before we were leaving from down south to come back up to Massachusetts, I got word that two precious people from our church had passed away. And I thought, there's no way I can miss that funeral. Because they were going to be right after we got back. And I said, two of them, I, there's, there's no way I can miss that funeral. Which caused an ethical conundrum inside of me. Why? Because I'm a firstborn. I'm a rule follower. I'm a by-the-book kind of guy. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, it didn't take me long at all before I thought, you know, my family and I, we've been really careful. We've worn the masks. We uh, don't have any symptoms. We've done the whole distancing thing while we're gone. And, you know, how are they enforcing this anyway? I thought, what would it look like just to skirt our way around it. Who's going to know? And some of you guys are thinking, Pastor, what a rebel. Yeah. Whoa, look at you. Others are thinking, can he say that? Can he say, this is online, right? Yeah. But don't worry. I'm not incriminating myself. Because God provided the test just when we needed it, and the results just when we needed it. He made a way for us to be able to abide by the law while still being there for the grieving families. And for that, I'm grateful. But that all of that got me thinking, why was I so quick to think the law was an option? Why did I think that this is, ah, I don't know. And then, like the Bible always does, I go to read it. And seeing Paul's response before these government leaders, I'm like, ooh, okay, that challenges me. That challenges me big time. So here's Paul. And he is going before a Roman governor named Felix with 
the high priest Ananias and his weasley little attorney named Tertullus. But I want you to see how Paul responds to them. All right, let's check it out. Acts chapter 24. Follow with me on the screen as I read out loud, starting in verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms to this nation. Everywhere in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge you with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, you see what he's doing here. He says, right? And I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him for yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors, of the follower of the way, which is another name for Christianity in the very beginning, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me. Nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Pray after me. Say, God... Open my heart, open my mind, change my life. I believe you can. I believe you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So getting back to our question. If Christ is our king, what is our relationship to earthly law? To our government leaders. To, for each of us, Living in a time like this, no doubt this is something that we've all had to wrestle with to some degree or another. What is our responsibility to the law of our land and those tasked to uphold it? Paul's clear on this one. He said, we make every effort to keep a clear conscience before the law out of obedience to God. Let me show you what I mean by this. Before we take a look at how Paul responds here, I wanted to get us an inside scoop into how Paul thinks, which we gain from Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul told the Romans, he said, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. What is he saying? 
All authority is God's. He sets up certain leaders, certain times, and obeying our leaders is a way we exercise obedience to God. He continues, verse 4, chapter 13. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Let me give you a little background. In the very beginning, God created this world as a place of order, justice. He created it to be a place of human flourishing under his righteous, good, sovereign leadership. But sin disrupted that. And now, because of sin, it is impossible to recapture perfection, to gain a utopia on our own. But human government, according to Paul, is one of God's agents now of order and justice in this world. Yes, governments are imperfect. And many times they swing between disorder, too lax of laws, and too harsh of laws and systems. And yes, we have a responsibility at times to speak truth to government leaders. I'll get to that in a moment. But foundationally, Paul says, our laws and those tasked to create them and enforce them are God's tool by which he creates order. Because we need order in society. With order comes responsibility. With order comes safety. With order becomes an acknowledgement of human rights and dignity. And then Paul says, though, why? Why do I seek to do this, Paul? Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Let me put that in my own words. We don't obey the law just because we want to serve ourselves, but out of love for God. You guys with me so far? All right, making sure. I'm throwing a lot at you. In other words... If we're followers of Christ, we don't obey the law because well, I don't want to get caught. <laughs> or I don't want to pay a fine. Or I don't want something to go on my record. Our motivation for obeying the law is ultimately to please God. The God who not only knows what we do in secret, but he knows the inner motives of our hearts. This means as Christ followers, the question we take going before the law is not how can I avoid getting caught, but it's how can I live in line with God's spirit. I like to define the word integrity as to live singularly in line or integrated with God's spirit. But let me make this clear. Because only a couple people like it so far. <laughs> to maintain a clear conscience doesn't mean we live a perfect life. We can't. But maintaining a clear conscience means that when we mess up, we at least are willing to admit it, to apologize, to make amends. Therefore... When we as followers of Christ obey the law, and someone who doesn't follow Christ obey the law, we may both have a clean criminal record, but our motivations are going to be entirely different. If you're tracking with me, nod your head. Okay. This means 
that as followers of Christ, if I have to compromise my integrity in order to win a business deal or a political showdown, then I would rather lose a temporary battle than compromise my conscience. To take that a step further. Because there are many things that there are not laws against. But still, following Christ leads us in that direction. For example, there aren't a ton of laws against slandering other people. But if I feel as as if I have to slander somebody else on social media for whatever reason, there may not be a law against that, but let me ask, what did we gain versus what did we lose? What we lost or what we might have gained was an upper hand or a little pride or a little pat on the back or maybe a couple followers. What we might have lost is our witness, is our conscience. So here's Paul, Acts 24. The judge, he's in a courtroom. The judge himself is Felix the governor. The plaintiff, the one making the accusations, is the high priest Ananias, but really his weaselly little attorney named Tertullus. What are they accusing him of? Well, in essence, uh, chapter 24, verse 5. We have found this man to be a plague, a disease, a virus. Don't, like that, that's hurtful today, okay? Don't, don't call me by that. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, which is a breach of Roman law. One who is a ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes, which was blasphemy against Jewish law, and profanes the temple against temple law. Bam, 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 throwing it at him. But in meanwhile, Paul is silent. He's confident. His conscience is clear. Because as he explains in a bit, he says, we know the truth. The truth is I came to Jerusalem to give a gift to the poor, not to stir up anything. The truth is I, I didn't come with any effort to profane the temple. He says, I actually just got done with a purification process. And I don't know about you, but like, if I was standing there and I had people accusing me of an unclear conscience, even though I knew that I had been doing everything I could to live in line with God, I would be furious. And my temptation in that moment would just be, you know what? Everybody else is compromising their conscience. I might as well too. If everybody else is accusing me of things, I know who I am. How dare they and totally lose my cool. But you look at Ananias, the high priest. Man, that dude wore holy robes, but he was a backroom dealer, political strategist, willing to assassinate anybody who compromised his power. Felix the governor, (laughs) that man had an affair with a married woman named Drusilla, stole her for himself and married her. Paul And then Felix, at the end of 24, if you read that, Felix even tries to get Paul to give him a bribe for his freedom. Everybody around Paul seemingly is compromising their conscience except him. But So why did he not just throw his hands up and say, if you can't beat him, join him? Why, when he was given the opportunity, did he not just, I'll throw Felix some money if it gains me my freedom? I know I'm innocent anyway. Why was this, was this man who, who was innocent after all, not to say, I'll compromise just once? 
Is it because he's a man of impeccable character far outside of our league? Nope. He'd be the first to tell you he was a murderer. (laughs) But ultimately, it's because he knew where his hope was. And this is key, key, key. When my undying hope is in the God of life, I need not fear what humans can do. See, when Paul was accused of leading some blasphemous sect, he responded to them. He said, listen, I believe everything in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I'm not, this is not some wonky belief that I have here. I mean, and listen here, I believe the same as many of the other Jews, he said, and here believe. That my hope in God is that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. He said, that's why. I strive always, if we get to the next verse, that's why I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Why does he keep his conscience clear before God and man? Because there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Pause. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) And I encourage you, please lean in on this part. Because this is vital to get if, you're gonna, if we're going to truly grasp what this passage has. Because in that day, many Jews, even those who rejected Jesus, believe much as Christians do today, that there would be a day when the God of justice would once and for all resurrect all people from the dead and hold court. Those who were wicked, he would condemn. Those who were faithful, he would reward. And this is something that actually Jesus taught as well. You remember if you've read Jesus, like how we talk about separating the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, that Jesus said there would be a day when all people will come before God and he will rightfully make all things right again, establish justice on earth, that those who belong to him he will receive and those who do not he will not. And my first reaction when I hear about the day when God makes all things right, is to say, yeah, get them. Right? Eradicate justice from this earth. All of those who, who every corrupt leader has got to give an account. Every abuser, every murderer has to stand before their creator. Every, every escaped Nazi or war criminal has to answer for their crimes. We all ache for that day, don't we? And we absolutely should. But are we quick to assume the judgment is just for others and not for us? When we allow the illuminating flame of God's holiness to shine on our hearts and our minds, can any of us say, I'm spotless? I certainly can't. And some of us, well, we said, well, you know, like, I feel pretty good. You know, if I ever had to stand before God, I've, I've lived a pretty good life compared to other people. So I, I think I'll be all set when I get to that day. But why do we assume that when we stand before God that he measures us against the standard of other people? Why do we assume that with, if a holy God is going to create justice and order... That he says, ah, you're better than your parents were, I guess. So, uh, yeah, you're all right. That's not what the scriptures say. 
The scriptures say that when we stand before God one day, he is not comparing us to Tom, Dick, and Harry. He's comparing us to Christ, not others. Now, that's a little sobering, isn't it? But yet, if you notice, Paul said that that day is his hope, not his fear. Why? Because he knew the resurrected king. Because, see, we have a God who knew that if we ever, whenever we have that, get to that day and we have to stand before a holy God and give an account, that we will not be able to stand up on our own. And because of that, our God took on frail human flesh. And he came to be born among us. And in being born among us, he came to submit to death as a sacrifice for our sin. And then in the greatest moment of human history, he was raised from the grave. That death tried to own him like everyone else. But God's power raised him and made him a sacrifice that he might give life to everyone who believes. And if some of you are thinking, well, I'm not really sure I believe that whole resurrection business in the first place. Well, like Paul said to Agrippa, he said, Agrippa, if you believe in God, why is it so hard for you to believe that God can resurrect the dead? And he said as well, he said, Agrippa, like, you know as well as anybody that this historically happened. He said, this didn't happen in some corner someplace. This happened in front, in the city, right outside the city. And he appeared to hundreds of people afterward who risked and gave their lives defending this message, a message that went out to transform the Roman world. Why is it so hard to believe that God can resurrect the dead? But what does that have to do with us? Jesus did that, but why is that also our hope? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he paved the way for our resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, what? Die. That whoever, whenever we come to Jesus with an open heart, not pretending to be better than what we are, and we place our trust in that his death paid the penalty of our sin and his resurrection made a way to life. Scriptures promise we share in all that is his. His righteousness is credited to our account. His spirit takes up residence within us. His eternal life becomes our inheritance. Somebody, you missed your, you missed your clapping moment right there. That's, see, with an undying hope... This is an undying hope. No matter what the world does, no matter what the world throws at us, even when it's at its worst, no one and nothing can take away what Christ has already done or what he promises to do. Felix may have had the power to execute Paul on the spot, but he knew Felix did not have the power over life and death. Paul recognized and he respected human position, but he did not trust in human power. See, I don't know where you are today. Maybe 
you think that Biden, Trump, or some other leader is for sure going to send this nation down the drain or going to fix every problem, I don't know. But our confidence doesn't rest in any human being. When my emotions are more often stirred by political articles than they are calmed by God's word, where's my hope? Yes, we respect our laws and our leaders, but they are not our hope. And if our ultimate hope is in what Christ has done for us, what he's already accomplished and what his promise is to do, and not in our leaders or the circumstances around us, what does that then free us to do? With a clear conscience, we pursue justice and we speak truth with resolute boldness. See, Paul, when he was standing before Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, he says, it doesn't matter if you're small or great. He says, I testified before everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a beggar on the street or you're a king like Agrippa. He says, I share this message with everybody. And what's so funny is in this, when you're reading Paul's defense in uh, Acts 24 to Felix, Paul's subtle. At first, he begins with the defense of his own conscience, but then you see how it turns because now he goes on the offense and he starts speaking to Felix's conscience. He says, Felix, the, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, he says, that's my hope, but is that your fear? Ooh. <laughs> right? Do you see that? See, Paul at this moment speaks truth to power because he knows that not only him, but he knows that that Felix, Ananias, Trump, Biden, school administrators, pastors, parents, and anybody else who has had a responsibility to care for others in this world, he says, well, he knows they will have to answer to God one day. And out of love for Felix, he's like, Felix, you need to see that, man. You need to see that. He says, the real issue here, Felix, verse 21, he says, is the resurrection of Jesus and whether or not you believe it because there might be a trial right now but it's nothing compared to the eternal trial to come. And after the trial it says that Felix calls Paul back in his room and they have a private chit chat. And they discuss righteousness for a man who is not living righteously. Self-control to a man who stole another man's wife and the coming judgment. Paul doesn't hold back. I think it's done in love, if I had to guess. I think it's done calmly, but he doesn't mince his words. And as a result of that, Felix says that he's alarmed. And he sends Paul away. See, while we as Christians are called to respect the law, we also have the responsibility to work towards God's justice and to speak his truth when the occasion arises. Thankfully, we live in a democracy. Our constitutional republic, really. Where there are pathways and ways that we can speak, we can work, we can act based on what we believe is right and good. We all know that policies themselves, they come from some sense of values. Whether they are the values of God or not. But we, as citizens here, are called, yes, to respect the law, but we are also called to speak truth to it. That even when social pressures may influence us, us influence us to be silent, that we are working toward truth and justice, not as a way of serving ourselves, but because we want to work for the love of our neighbor. 
politics are a way that we work for the love of our neighbor. And as followers of Christ, we love the unborn and we love the mothers. We love the elderly and the young, the minorities and the inmates, the poor, the abused, the trafficked, and the exploited. And because our hope is in the the resurrection of Jesus, we even love our enemies. And because of that, we're not a conforming presence in society, we are a transforming one. That even when we belong to a political party, because we agree with their policies, or maybe we, we, we like what they stand for, do we realize that as followers of Christ, we can never give our unconditional support to any political party? That there will be times when following Jesus, we will be required to speak truth and reform to even our own parties. It got quiet. That's okay. But as I've been reflecting on all this for myself, I've had to ask, If I'm going to be prepared to love my neighbor here and now, how will I be prepared to speak truth and to work for justice when the moment comes? Paul didn't go looking for this moment in front of Felix, but he was prepared when the moment came. And it really starts with an honest heart. Before God, And so I want to try an exercise. If you, don't, if you guys don't mind, we're going to get a little bit interactive here as I'm about to close out. And if you feel comfortable, I want you to where you are, just close your eyes and take a deep breath. Don't worry, no one's going to come mess with you. No one's going to touch you. you know, like, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. This is really a moment between you and God. But if you could close your eyes and take a deep breath. For kids... For parents who have kids at home, no guarantees that your kids might mess with you. But at least you can do this later. And as you take a deep breath, I'm going to give you just a few questions to ponder in your mind. Number one, God, am I anxious? God, am I carrying burdens that were never mine to carry? God, am I bitter? Bitter towards leaders, authority figures, maybe even you. God, are there things outside of my control that I'm trying hard to control? Let those thoughts come into your mind. You know, Paul was a man who faced plenty of anxiety in his life, and he learned early on how to work through that. And he tells us in the book of Philippians, he says, if you are anxious, he said, first off, take those things, whatever came to your mind just now, take those things and present them to God. He said, with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to take a moment Just name some of those things out to God. But in the process, thank Him for the new life that you have in Christ. And the assurance of that he, you know that he's going to make all things right again. Even when everything else seems wrong, he is faithful. Just take a moment right now of silence just to lay those things out before him.
God, will you cleanse our hearts and our minds? Will you free us as we look at our hope? Free us to follow you boldly, truthfully. Amen. Everybody open your eyes if if they were closed. This is an exercise that you guys can put into your day Monday through Saturday. That you can incorporate into it. But it's a way that we consistently lift our burdens off. And in turn receive that hope again. That in all seasons, under all leaders, the life of Christ leads us out with a clear conscience. An undying hope and a resolute boldness. Let me just end with this. Worship team, you guys want to come on up? Let me end with this. During this whole COVID season, I had an opportunity um, to sit beside an elderly woman whose body, physical body, was failing. But her mind, her heart, man, they were fully alive in Christ. And as I thought about who she was, and she began to reminisce about her life because she had pictures of her family all around her, but she was still very alert. And she began to talk back through her life. And this was a woman who had lived through World War I, Vietnam War, civil rights, more presidents than I can even count. She's been through it. But she didn't talk about any of that. She sat there and talked about how good God has been to her, how at peace she was. How much she's just so grateful for those she loved most. And then she said, can I give you some advice? Well, let me ask. If a woman who loves Jesus that much on her deathbed is giving you advice, what do you do? You lean forward, right? And just to sum up the advice she gave, to paraphrase, she says, I know the world's crazy right now. She says, but those who endure well, she says, are those who consistently are grateful for the gifts of God right in front of them. And she said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, and also love your kids well. <laughs> that was her advice. And if I could sum it up, in essence, what she was saying, number one, don't lose hope. And whatever God has placed right in front of you, do it with a clear conscience and do it to the best because he is in control. In all seasons, under all kinds of leaders, God leads us out with a clear conscience, an undying hope, and a resolute boldness. Let's stand up and pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul. But I pray that as we look at this story, that we realize that what you do and did through Paul, God, that you desire to do the same through each one of us. Because Paul was just simply a man surrendered to your spirit. And so, God, I pray that as we just lay the burdens, the anxieties that are on our hearts before you, God, not thinking about anybody else, not comparing ourselves to anybody else, but just simply laying those things out before you, God, that you create a fresh hope in our heart as we remember the life that you've given us and that you set our eyes up toward you even when the world around us is crazy. Thank you, God, for the hope that never fails in Jesus alone. In your mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. Let's sing our one final song.